I'd invite you now to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. This morning's message is entitled Drifting. I think that the most dangerous place to be if you are an apathetic Christian is church. Think about that for a second. You're apathetic, kind of wishy-washy spiritually, so you sit in church and you think that you're okay. Perhaps being in a Bible class or a Bible curriculum or a Bible study or a Bible college or a seminary could be equally, if not more, dangerous where you are filling your head with Bible facts, but they're not hitting your heart. It's dangerous. And it, the danger is found in this principle. It's the principle found in Scripture where the more light that you are exposed to means that you are more accountable to Christ. The more light of Christ that you are exposed to means that you are more accountable to actually fall down and worship him genuinely, affectionately, authentically. The idea of being exposed to a lot of Christ and a lot of Bible and then ultimately rejecting the truth is something that creates a very hardening effect on the heart. Knowledge puffeth up, right? The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, is the way that some people put it. Quoting a, a pastor, he said, Hell is full of people who are never wittingly opposed, opposed to Christ, but who simply ignore the gospel. How many people are in hell who were close to salvation, who thought they were safe. goes on to say, drifting is so quiet, so easy, but so damning. All you need to do to go to hell is to do nothing. Drifting, just being carried along by the drift, by the current, thinking that you're okay and you're drifting along to a disaster. I remember being in a storm uh, with some friends. I used to be a surfer on the East Coast in a former life. I actually went surfing recently, but it's different now. It's old man style. Back then, back then when I was on the East Coast, we would go down on the outer banks of North Carolina, those barrier reef islands where many a ship drifted to their doom and I found themselves shipwrecked on sandbars and we would go out there in the middle of winter with thick wetsuits on. This was my first exposure to cold. Um, now I live it, you know, I live it out actually day to day. But we would put ourselves in, I don't know, whatever the degree of water temperature we were in and we'd be as a group. But the current would drift you down sometimes a half mile or a mile from where you would go out. And it was a very imperceptible current because... You were focused more on not being slaughtered by the storm surf as you were trying to catch waves. So we were out there one day and we thought the pier was about two, three hundred 
yards away from us still, and we're focused on the storm surf, and about four or five of us suddenly look up and say, whoa, we're right on the pylons, and there's no getting around the pier. We couldn't paddle away from it or around it. We had to thread the proverbial needle and miss the barnacles that were on the pylons, and thankfully we did so. Drift is very imperceptible sometimes. It's, it's dangerous, and you don't realize what's going on. A former Member of our church, Damien Voiles, you might remember the Voiles family who were here with their six girls, and uh, he was telling me of a story that I really like. It's about him. He was uh, a Californian growing up, and he became a, a business partner, and they had a business trip where uh, they went lobster hunting off the coast of California. And so there he was on this trip as a young guy and really eager and anxious and kind of an athletic guy wanting to get as many lobsters as he could in his bag. He jumped off with the diving team and it was at night. So there was a lamp over the, uh, the boat off the side of the boat that as long as you were underneath this lamp, you were safe and you were weighted down. So I think he was on, you know, I don't know how, how deep he was, but he was moving along, getting his lobsters in his bag or he was hunting them and wanting to get as many as possible. And he got so involved into what he was doing and he looked up and he saw the light was there. So he was okay. But suddenly he realized the dive team was nowhere around him and Suddenly, he felt like somebody was watching, or something was watching, and it was a shark. And so the hunter became the hunted, and there he was, you know, down on the bottom of the ocean floor, thinking he was safe under the lamp, and the shark came up on him, and he had to actually punch it to get away. He used all his oxygen up, as you can imagine, being exasperated, came to the surface and thought he was safe under the lamp of the boat, which was right next to him, and really, it was the light of the moon, And he had drifted two miles from his vessel and from his dive team and had to doggy paddle up on the surface, hoping the shark wasn't going to come up and get him uh, back to the boat. And he made it safely back to us. He lost a foot. No, just kidding. No, he's. (laughs) But these happy endings uh, are the same happy ending we can have if we heed the warning of scripture that's found in Hebrews chapter two. And ultimately, it would be a disaster not to heed this warning. Follow as I read verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at First by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. The focus I want us to have this morning is on the warning of verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift, lest we drift away from it. This is a warning. It's, it's sort of the author's moment of desperation where he's been talking all about Christ and the exaltation of Christ and how Christ is worthy of our worship. Don't worship angels. Don't worship created beings. Don't be fascinated by them. Yes, they brought you the law. Yes, they were present at the giving of the law with Moses by thousands. 
Yes, they connect you back to your Jewish heritage, but don't be fascinated by created beings. Be fascinated by Christ. And by the way, all of the Old Testament verifies and validates the authority and exaltation of Christ. Even verses 13 and 14, just want to cover those. We kind of um, touched on them through the reading of God's word. But just listen, Psalm 110 verse 1 is quoted here. To which of the angels has he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Christ is the exalted. He's one, he's positioned at God's right hand. Now, what is the position of the angels? Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits with the purpose sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What's the purpose of an angel? Well, to bring the message of the gospel to you and to me. Hark the herald, the angels sing, right? Glory to God in the highest. The angels were always pronouncing the coming and glory of Christ. He is not here. He is risen. That's the goal and the role of an angel, not for an angel to be worshipped. Christ is exalted as the one worshipped. But in the midst of this chapter 1 display of Christ's glory, the author can't contain himself. He goes, oh, I got to shoot up a flare right now. If, if you have this kind of exposure for who God is in Christ, if you're going to be exposed to the Son, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, the Son who is the revelator of God, then you better not drift away from that message. Because if you're exposed to Christ at this level and you drift away, you're putting your soul in jeopardy. And perhaps eternal jeopardy, where you are faking yourself out Believing you're safe, believing you're secure in Christ because you hear a lot about Christ, but you're really not embracing on a heart level who Christ really is. You're not a worshiper yet. And if you're in that situation, you're in a dangerous place. You're at the bottom of the ocean with a shark that's about to eat you. That's the kind of danger that this author is warning the hearers of. They were fascinated with the old covenant message and they were missing the new covenant message and messenger, which is Christ. Look at verse one again. It's a warning. Therefore, everything is looking back to chapter one. Therefore, based on what I've just said, I'm giving you this warning. The warning is to not miss that all of the Bible could be called the Jesus book. It's all about Jesus Christ. Christ, it all is. It's not some sort of Da Vinci code or some sort of, you know, sort of mind game where you're trying to figure out what's going on. It's clearly about Christ. And the warning is to pay much closer attention to what you've heard. You've heard about Christ, but you need to dig in. And who needs to dig in? Well, Christians need to dig in. A lot of people will say, well, the author's writing to believers, but he's also writing to unbelievers as if he knows who the haves and the have-nots are in his audience. But really, no, he's writing to Christians or people who might think that there are Christians. Remember, there's always the wheat and the tares. There are people who don't yet all the way know if they have come to Christ. And there's people who believe that they've come to Christ and really they have not. The call is for all of us as believers to persevere in the Christian life, we're all called to run the race and to keep 
running. That's what Hebrews 12 reminds us of. We run to Christ. We're saved, but we're saved as marathoners who are running all the way to the end. Paul includes himself here. He says, we must pay, I say Paul, the author, who I already argued was not Paul. The author says, we must pay much closer attention to Christ. We have to. We have to. It's a real warning for Christians to persevere. Remember, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to fight the good fight of faith, to pay close attention to your life and your doctrine. In doing so, you save others and save yourself. You're being saved as you are working out your salvation in fear and trembling. You are saved, and Christ preserves you, and then finally you cross the finish line into glory. That's what that First Timothy 4 passage means. You endure to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved. If you veer off into sin and immorality, if you veer off into false teaching, then it proves that you were never saved in the first place. Paul, t- or Paul took this very seriously in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I do not run aimlessly, 1 Corinthians nine twenty six. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I take disqualified there as not disqualified from ministry. I take it more seriously. Adakimas. It means to be finding out one day that you were disqualified as a marathoner. You were never a marathoner in the first place. It's, it, Paul didn't want to wake up one day and say, you know what, I was a fake. I was faking myself out and everything that I was doing was really a sham. That's the warning of this passage. You can say, well, are warnings supposed to put us in a good mood? I mean, why, why are you bringing this up? Well, this is the first of five warnings that are severe warnings in Hebrews. And they're not meant to make you doubt your faith. They're meant to make your, your spirit get jolted for a second where you say, okay, I know I'm a believer. I've examined myself. I'm a runner. I've lately been limping in the race. I've been wanting to give up, but I'm going to keep going. And if you're someone who's persevering, then you're someone who has the assurance of salvation. You're someone who is a Christian. You can't lose your salvation. But it's there nevertheless to jolt people and to wake people up who are in the church who are possibly apathetic. This is one of those jolt warnings. We don't want to become familiar with the gospel in a negative sense, right? Familiarity is a soul killer. It is. Familiarity, where the gospel becomes this non-factor in your life. It doesn't really matter anymore. It's, I know it, check, 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 heard it, been there, done that. I got my assurance card. I'm good to go. No, pay careful attention that as you are exposed to Christ, you don't just yawn at Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? We can't do that. It's dangerous. Drifting is like a ring slipping off the finger. It was compared to food going down the wrong pipe, (laughs) as if there's two pipes. (laughs) It's a nautical term, like a boat drifting past safe harbor while the pilot sleeps. It's not a sudden disastrous sin like David falling to sin with Bathsheba. This is the imperceptible step-by-step walking away from your faith sin. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way, in Mere Christianity, if you haven't read it, great book to read, great book to go through in Bible study. He says, as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. He says, rather than that, do not most people simply drift away? So it's typically not some extraordinary sin that plucks a person away from persevering in the faith. It's typically not some dramatic argument where you say, well, maybe I don't believe in Christ. Nope. Instead, it's a person who thinks they're safe or rationalizes that they're okay, and they just drift step by step by step away from Christ. J.C. Ryle put it this way. It's like being at the top of a church steeple, and you're just going down one step at a time. Down, 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 all the way down to where a person has walked away. They're apostizing the faith. They're not really a Christian at all, and they go right into hell, the wide road that leads to destruction. English explorer William Edward Perry, he he took a crew to the Arctic Ocean, thought we could relate to this one, Um, wanted to go farther north to continue their chartings. So they calculated their location by stars, by the stars, and started a very difficult and treacherous march north. They walked hour upon hour, and finally, totally exhausted, they stopped. Taking their bearings again from the stars, they discovered that they were farther south than they had been when they started. They'd been walking on an ice flow that was moving south faster than they were walking north. It's an incredible picture of where people really think they are doing well spiritually, but really they're digressing rather than moving forward. And it's a serious warning here in verse 1 of chapter 2. I just did not want you to miss it. Point 2. We're going to reason from the lesser to the greater. That's what the author does here. He's reasoning from the lesser to the greater. He's making an argument from a lesser standpoint, and then he's going to make the same argument from a greater standpoint. And verse 2 is the lesser because he makes his argument, first of all, from the Old Testament law. It says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Let's stop there. It says, for since. Uh, He's talking about the law. He's saying the law didn't fail. It's not if it worked, it did work. It was foolproof. It was irrefutably true and potent and powerful. The law of retribution was in play with the law. If you broke the law, the law would break you. It was inviolable. If you committed adultery, if you committed false worship, You were often brought outside the camp and stoned to death. Numbers 15 talks about someone, a scenario literally where he broke the Sabbath and he was adjudicated to be brought out of the camp. He had picked up sticks, he had gathered sticks on the Sabbath and he was to be stoned. Sounds harsh, but this is the effects of the law. Verse 2, again, it was a message declared by angels. Why is he bringing that up? He's saying, look, the issue of angel worship or angel fascination needs to be dismissed. Really, the issue beneath the issue is you are being seduced back into the old covenant. You're moving away from the living water and you want to die in the Dead Sea if you go back to the old covenant. 
They perhaps as the early church were under Neronian persecution. Nero was coming as the emperor of Italy. Hebrews chapter 13 is where the author is greeting those and saying those from Italy greet you. So he could be greeting the early church there who were under Nero's persecution or coming persecution and they were wanting to hide back in their Judaism going back into the old covenant, the sacrificial system saying I'm good. And the author is saying, no, the new covenant has come. This was a covenant, the old covenant, that was declared by angels. It was proved reliable, though. Angels were present when the law was given. Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68, Acts 7, talk about this, Galatians 3. Thousands of holy ones were present with flaming fire at right hand when the law was given on Mount Sinai. Chariots of God, twice ten thousands and thousands upon thousands. Moses in the wilderness, he heard from an angel, the living oracles, they were delivered by angels, put in place through angels. But the issue was deeper than just angels. This was that the law that was given was proven reliable. Every transgression, do you see that in verse two? Transgression means to cross the line, by the way. Every law that was given when someone would cross the line brought a judgment. You know, it's the old, don't walk on the grass. Oh, I'm gonna walk on the grass. It's willful disobedience. There are sins of commission and omission. This is, I am committing a sin. But then there are sins of omission. And that's what's mentioned here. Disobedience received a just retribution. Disobedience literally means not to hear. It's like a child who is told not to do something and they're going, what, did you say something, huh? And it takes discipline to loosen up the earwax, right, in the ear canal. It's amazing, it melts it. But that's the disobedience that's mentioned here. James chapter one says that if you break one law, you're guilty of it all, right? James 2.10, rather. It's comprehensive. Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28 talk about the fact that the law was legally binding and it was a just retribution. Now, the whole issue is this. In the Old Testament, Old Covenant community, if you drifted there, The consequences were dire. If you ignored God's salvation there, then and there, the consequences were severe. Earthly consequences with an inviolable law. But shifting to verse 3, arguing from the greater, how much more severe is it to come face to face with Christ and reject him? How much more dire are your circumstances then? Not just being killed physically on earth, but to be damned forever, eternally in hell. That's the stakes that this author is talking about. Rejecting Christ brings a dire consequence. Look at verse 3. We're arguing now from the greater. How shall we escape? How shall we do it? If, If things were this severe with the law in the old covenant... Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape something like that? Drifting will mean something eternal, a judgment that's final. Matthew 22 is where Jesus speaks of a parable 
It's a story of a king who gives a wedding feast for his son and the king is sending out servants to invite people, the upper class of the community, to come to this wedding feast. And he kills and slaughters the animal and prepares the banquet and he invites people, but those who were invited paid no attention. They're just drifting. Voila, we don't want to come. Some of those people subdue the servants, those who are inviting, and they seize them and mock them and shame them and in some cases kill them. It's a picture of killing the prophets in the Old Testament. Well, we don't care. We don't care. We hear you, but we're better than you. The servants were redirected to invite the commoners. Matthew 22, verse 11, picks up on the scenario here where when the king came to look at the guest, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless, and the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. You know, you might be the called, not savingly called, but you're called because you're under the hearing of the gospel, but you might not yet be chosen. The chosen is someone who believes. That's how we know someone was chosen, because they believe. That's how you need to think about that. I'm calling to you with the gospel. Don't drift. Don't yawn. Awaken to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow him. If you're apathetic, gut check and follow him. Don't drift. It's dangerous to drift. A pastor, he preached a series called The Sins of the Saints and Preached a sermon series on that, and a lady in the church, older lady in the church, had been there a while. She confronted him, reprimanded him, and said, After all, sin in the life of a Christian is different from sin in the lives of other people. And the pastor quickly replied, Yes, the sins in the church are far worse. Far worse. The more light you have, the more dangerous it is. To ignore the light. The Pharisees ignored the light, right? And they attributed Christ's miracle ministry to who? Yeah, the works of the Holy Spirit, he, they attributed to Satan. And they blasphemed the Holy Spirit and they were committing the unpardonable sin. They were being brought to the point of no return. It's a hardening effect that people in this life can find themselves in and we need to fight against that by... Not sleeping. Well, the author goes on in verse 3, the writer here, and as strong as he is with the law and with the warning not to drift, he is equally winsome to help the hearers to not drift by saying, look, verse 3, it, the salvation, it, salvation was declared at first by the Lord. It was declared by the Lord. Why does he say that? He's saying two things here. First of all, When Jesus was here, his declaration was personal. He was really here, historically here, and it was personal. The message of Jesus came right from the lips of Christ into the hearts of the people. He was, he he reached out and touched people, right? First John chapter one, he was handled, he was touched. He was understandable. He healed people. He was here. It was a personal message from the Lord. And it's the Lord. It was an authoritative message. 
It was a binding message. It was a strong message. And it was from the Lord. It was a reliable transmission. These Christians, by the way, again, were putting their lives on the line. If they were going to be exposed, fully exposed as Christians, not as part of Christendom or am I kind of a quasi-Jew still? I'm, I'm not coming all the way over to Christ. No, they're saying I'm taking a stand for Christ. They needed to be reassured that the message of Christ was reliable and it came from a firsthand experience of Christ and his ministry. Second, it was confirmed. It was, do you see this, attested to us by those who heard. Now, what we're talking about is of Christ, the messenger, to hearers, to then those hearers who then told other hearers. And these hearers are the writer of Hebrews and the readers of Hebrews or the hearers of Hebrews. This is a third generation of communication. You have Christ down to people who were the disciples like John and Matthew and Mark. They were with Christ. And then you have others who were disciples of them who heard. And that's who are attesting to this communication, the transmission of the early church. It often came orally. It also came through the written Word and they were needing to be reinvigorated that the new covenant message, message is true. There's a fragment from what's called ecclesia, ecclesiastical history. So put on your thinking cap. If you have your reading glasses, just put them on just to look smart right now and, and think with me for a minute. Don't want to lose you. It's an autobiographical fragment and um, it was um, from, um, it was to Irenaeus, young Irenaeus, who was a bishop of Lyons. And Lyons in ancient France is near Paris, and he was the bishop over that area. Well, what you have here is you have Jesus, who communicated with the Apostle John, who communicated with Polycarp, Polycarp who gave his life in martyrdom in AD 55. But before he was martyred, he talked to young Irenaeus, who was this bishop of Lyons. And he, Polycarp talked about how John talked to him about how John was with Jesus. And so we have a fragment that talks about this, but it's an important one. Listen. And as he, this is Polycarp, remembered their words. This is Polycarp talking to John about Jesus. And as he, Polycarp, remembered their words and what he heard from them concerning the Lord and concerning his miracles and concerning his teaching, having received them from eyewitnesses of the word of life, John, who was the eyewitness, Polycarp said this, Polycarp, or it was about Polycarp. Polycarp related all things in harmony with the scriptures. These things being told me, this is Irenaeus talking to Polycarp, these things being told me by the mercy of God, I listened to them attentively, noting them down, not on paper, but in my heart. And continually through God's grace, I recalled them faithfully. Why do I mention this? I mention this for this reason. Many of you either have been discipled or you need to be discipled. Who's that? Who would say, who would boldly say, there was a time in my life where someone took time and invested in me personally and discipled me, who sat down with me with the word, with their life, and told me, like John to Polycarp, Polycarp to Irenaeus, this is who Jesus is. This is what he should mean to you. Listen. 
Discipleship matters. If you don't want to drift, be discipled. If you don't want to drift, disciple somebody. Drifting Christians are Christians who are islands unto themselves. They're out there diving around on the bottom of the ocean, thinking that they're safely under the light of their vessel, only to surface and see that they're under a different light. And it's not the light of safety. It's the light of danger. And whoops, I'm out in the ocean all by myself, drifting away. Do you see that? Christians who put themselves under somebody or put themselves over somebody find safety there. And that's what's going on in this text. And also, as Irenaeus was discipled, the Holy Spirit was hitting his heart with the truth. What was being said was being measured by Scripture, and the Scripture was illuminating his heart. And he was saying, I never forgot these things. It's 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things you've heard in, from me in the presence of many witnesses and trusted faithful men that they may be able to teach others also. What well, brings us to verse 4. This is the final witness in our hearts that keeps us from drifting. And this is the witness of God himself. Not only do we know Jesus was the first-hand communicator, and not only do we know that people in the second and third generation carried this communication on, so the gospel is a greater salvation, it is verifiable, but God himself bears witness in our hearts that the gospel is true, and the gospel is powerful, and the gospel is real, and Jesus is real, and Jesus is worth it, and we give our lives to him. That's the point of verse 4. He bore witness in the early church by signs and wonders and various miracles. Uh, through Christ's ministry, there were signs and wonders that were irrefutable and, and comprehensive. A lot, of day, a lot of times today, you have signs and wonders movements out there that are not comprehensive and they're unverifiable. Well, with Jesus, when he calmed the storm, the storm went still. When Jesus healed um, the man's withered hand, it was completely healed, right? So much so that the Pharisees said, you can't do that. That's work. I know, but his hand is healed. But it's work, so you're, you know, right? I mean, when, when Jesus said, little girl, arise, guess what? She got up. When at the widow's son, uh, son's funeral at Nain, when, when that boy sat up in his coffin or whatever, that was real. Could you imagine? Hey, I'm here. I'm alive. When Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus came forth. He was mummified, but he came forth. Probably didn't smell very good, but he came forth. He was resurrected. These miracles are irrefutable. We have moral miracles today, as William Barclay puts it, where people get saved. They're going this way, and then they're going that way. They're alive spiritually. These are the testimony in our hearts where we know that that God verified the message. He verified the gospel message through the the apostles, the signs of the apostles. And we know that from 2 Corinthians 12, 12, they did works as Christ's proxy. And we have gifts of the spirit today in the church for the edification of the body of Christ to build one another up. But let me just emphasize this. These miracles, these powers, these gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. uh, When we see... God alive in our gift mix in the church, we know the gospel's real. When we see you serve, when we see you say, I'm going to step up and I'm going to disciple that person. 
then you know the gospel's real. When God is touching your heart through scripture as someone is saying, listen, I see this in your life. And the Holy Spirit's opening up that moment and something is corrected. You go, wow, Jesus is alive. I'm not going to try to hide in some sort of old school religion or some sort of fabricated false Christianity or some sort of half Christ, half gospel Christianity. No, I'm all in, all for Christ because he's alive. And the Holy Spirit's bearing witness in my heart that I'm a son of God. Those ministering angels, they brought a message an old covenant message, but the Holy Spirit is bringing a new covenant message to my heart and I am alive. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ has, has opened my mind and I know Jesus is real. Don't drift, don't drift. It's an old hymn writer named Robin, Robert Robinson who as a young boy lost his father. He was living on welfare in the 1800s in England He got in with the wrong crowd, didn't have a father's direction. He was with a gang of rowdies and he harassed a drunken gypsy and they poured liquor down her and demanded her to tell them fortunes for free. And she said to Robinson, Robert Robinson, you know, you're one day going to actually see your kids and grandkids. And that stirred him and shocked him enough for him to one day as a young boy visit a Methodist preacher and it was George Whitfield. And he heard George Whitfield preaching against the Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers, and that shook him. And then a few years later, he was saved. At age 20, he went into the ministry and became a uh, Methodist preacher. But then um, during that time, what he's most notably known for is that he wrote this hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. But he also wrote this line, and he lived this line. Do you know what I'm about to read? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Do you ever sing that and go, this is my confession time. I was singing, you know, but now I'm like confessing my sins. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You know, as his story plays out, he actually had a friend that seduced him for a time into a false teaching where he went towards the Unitarian Church. Went out from being a Methodist and was becoming a Unitarian where they deny the full deity of Christ. And during that time, it's said that he was on a stagecoach ride and he was kind of waffling, drifting along in his latter years. And a woman was sitting next to him humming the song that I just sang or read. Praise the Lord, I didn't sing it. (laughs) But she was singing, Come Thou Fount. And the lady asked him, witnessing to him, if she knew the song that she was humming he said, Madam, I am poor and unhappy. I am the man that wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. And the woman replied, but these streams of mercy are still flowing. And Robinson was restored to fellowship with the Lord and finished out his days not as a drifter, but as a Christian.